Welcome to Working Media with Rafael Bracero. Welcome to a new episode of Working Media with Rafael Bracero. Today's guest is a personal mentor and the, in a multi-talented uh, human being, Mike Merkema. He is CEO of the Beckett Film Fund, uh, where he wears many hats. He's a financier, distributor, marketer, market research. And actually in the kind of pre-interview, I found out that he's also uh, obviously executive producing, but he's also writing now. Uh, so incredible uh, range of, of talents. Uh, he's also a, a personal mentor of mine from my days as a USC uh, MBA student. Um, he's also, uh, I, I would say, uh, one, of the, one of the people I looked up to in terms of uh, his ability to really connect with folks uh, and people and both uh, personally and from a, uh, from a career standpoint. Uh, so just a master networker, uh, which is an incredible, uh, incredibly important skill to have uh, these days, particularly if you're working in entertainment. Um, and of course, you know, like I said, the rest of all, uh, Mike is a devoted USC Marshall uh, School alum. Uh, so a big Trojan welcome to the podcast, podcast, Mike. Fight on. Thank you very much. Nice to chat with you. Great. So, um, so I, I've known you now since literally uh, the, the, the aughts, right? So I think when I started... Uh, my MBA at USC, you, ha you had already graduated. You were already a, a uh, senior exec at, uh, at Sony uh, Pictures. Uh, I think uh, if I recall correctly, you, you were working on like a lot of the, I, mean, I think at the time you were doing like sales planning, vendor management inventory. I mean, you were like, in, you know, you had a very like interesting role there uh, uh, while, while I was a student. And, and I think you came and spoke at a, one of the business of entertainment sessions uh, for uh, our um, cohort uh, and I, I found like wow that's really some interesting uh, you know some interesting paths that that uh, Mike uh, you know is uh, into and so I reached out and and you were actually kind enough to uh, hear me out and actually uh, were kind enough to even offer me an internship during the summer which I'm eternally grateful for I learned a ton um, so I guess the first thing that that I wanted to to ask you uh, about was um, you know, let, let's talk about because we did talk about uh, being a, a Trojan. Is you know what what does the this uh, Trojan network? Uh, you know what has it done for you, and, and how do you and you've given back so much to it. But t tell me about like you know what being a Trojan means to you. Well, the Trojan network, I believe, is the best in the world. I think many people say that. Um, there are other great net. Uh, uh, universities that have good networks, but the Trojan family takes care of itself um, and networks and gives back. Um, undergrads and grad students can have mentors, like you mentioned. There's so many graduates uh, that are willing to give back that it helps bring uh, undergrads and grads to a higher level than they otherwise would by having you know somebody to look up to, to ask questions of, and to model their careers after if that's what they want to do and just to get general advice. So I think it's, you know, USC is about giving back, you know, whether it's time, you know, money, expertise, attention, all those sorts of things. And so I believe that that's a, that uh, we should do that to help our, our, our fellow person, in this case, Trojan. 
That's, and, and you've been also involved with like the, the USC, the partners, right? I think, which is kind of one of the, uh, one of those fundraising type of arms and very active, uh, you know, at, at a high level, right? With uh, the, the USC community. And, and I know that you go to all the, all the Trojan games, uh, home and away games. So, uh, so that, you know, I, I bet you that I'm assuming that's been like a great way for you also to, to connect with, with uh, a lot of folks as well, right? Yes, uh, over the past years, I've gone to a lot of events, both sporting and otherwise, and um, it was a great, you know, it was a great time. That's for sure, fun and interesting, and I've met a lot of great people and networking. And you know, I'm a, a networker, you know, in and out of the Trojan family. Um, I think I was one of the first people, certainly in the first year that LinkedIn existed. I I signed up, saw what what it was. I think I've got about 23,000 contacts on LinkedIn, um, but it's something that one has to work at. It's not, um, um, you know, it takes time and effort. And what I tell people is networking, what networking is not, it's not talking to the people you already know. Networking is talking to people you don't know. So friends of friends and friends of friends of friends and those sorts of things. Um, that's what networking is. Right. No, and I think that that's that's a group. I mean, my, my guys, I think you have more LinkedIn uh, contacts than, than everybody we've heard of. So that's incredible. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, when so you're coming out of uh, the Marshall School. And I think at that point uh, you had uh, you were actually uh, so you have a really interesting background. So you work uh, not, not only in in um, in entertainment, but you also have a very strong uh, CPG background and market research background and kind of a, a financial forecasting and systems background. So uh, I think, uh, you know, you started, you started uh, with Kellogg, right? Uh, and then I think you went over to Nielsen to work on uh, some, uh, like a, an, essentially like an in entertainment engagement. So tell us about how you kind of came up and, and take us through a little bit of that path and what the thinking was when, when you came out of school and, and what you wanted to accomplish. Well, I think I would start after undergrad, as you did, um, and, and people generally career-wise, they're either function people or they're industry people, and I'm actually a function guy, and so I like marketing research and consumer behavior, which are actually different things. Um, I like forecasting and planning. Um, I like sales and marketing and advertising and promotions, and all those sorts of things are very interesting for me. And so my first job out of school, which actually I don't think is on my LinkedIn, is I did feasibility absorption analysis for real estate developers in Orange County. So I, uh, developers would come to me and they would have a, a, a plot of land and they wanted to put a community on it of some sort. And I would analyze the, um, uh, viabil the financial viability of those projects. So I would say, okay, well, what is it zoned and how many houses can be put there? And can you, can you put condos? Can you put apartments? Can you have high rises have to be low rises, single family detached, you know, how many houses per acre? And they would tell me what their plans were. And then I would analyze the marketplace. How many people are moving in? What are you planning to sell the houses for? Who are the demographics that would be buying them? And that would, I would put together these big books um, for the developers that would go through all of that, what 
what's available in the marketplace, what's the inventory of property. And then they would take these big books to the banks and take loans out um, against the property they already owned in order to build these sometimes master plan communities. Like I did a lot of work in Aliso Viejo, Marina Valley Ranch and those sorts of places. Oh, beautiful. And then, yeah. And so then, you know, with the marketing plans that I would put together, they would hire interior decorators. They would say, oh, these are for new buyers. They're, you know, in their 20s and 30s and they're first time buyers. And these are the types of houses they can afford and want. And here's what the decor should look like. Maybe it should be very light or maybe it should be dark woods, whatever it happens to be for that style of person. Or these are big houses for move up buyers that now have a bunch of kids. And then how do you, how do you decorate this? What does it look like? How many bedrooms do they want? That sort of thing. And then I left there and I went to Kellogg's and I did sales and marketing there, mostly marketing research. And um, using demographics there, I saw that, um, um, well, it was, it, it was later acquired by Kellogg's, but Cheez-Its Cheez is the number one cheese cracker in the world because they put cheese in the dough. And so it tastes better than, than the other other oh, brands out there generally speaking. I always speaking. love the Cheez-Its. I didn't know that that was actually the, uh, the, the master plan there. That's, that's good. good to know. Yeah. So it was healthier. It was not chemically. It was real cheese and it was put in the dough. Okay. But I saw demographics change in the United States where Hispanics were having more children. There, were, there was a net in-migration of Hispanic people. And everybody in the country was going crazy for Mexican food. Taco Bell was opening, you know, 20 new stores a day. So I said, why don't we take cheese it hot and spice cheese it and put Mexican spices in it? And so cheese it hot and spicy was born. Um, I'm not a food scientist and I just conceptualized the idea, but I used this marketing research and forecasting and stuff to, you know, put that idea forward to the head of research um, and that sort of thing. So that was fun. And then I went to work for Nielsen. So I was now a marketing research consultant and I was on site with Nestle, um, again, using sales planning and forecasting and demographics and uh, looking at all kinds of data from, you know, television data to sales, you know, daily store level sales for grocery drug and mass for the Nestle chocolate division and help them roll out Butterfinger BBs and Bunch of Crunch, which were um, line extensions. Um, and then I also oh, wait, so, stay, on so staying on that, I just wanted to just bring in. So I remember when I was working at Procter and Gamble after this, after uh, I left uh, SE, uh, I, uh, I did get to work with the, the food scientists on the on the beverage side, and uh, and and that was actually one of the most fun experiences to have. So I actually uh, was able to uh, work with them very closely, working with the insights that 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 I helped to generate. With our, with, with our consumer insights team uh, and came up with a, a new uh, be a new platform uh, of coffees uh, around a Brazilian blend um, insight, which essentially because it was the source origin uh, was very hot back, you know, back, especially in those days, even still now, I think. Um, and Colombian was our number one roast, uh, but it was very expensive for us to make because it, it uh, those beans, uh, uh, those Arabica beans were so expensive. So we wanted to make something that would be a lot cheaper that also uh, we could introduce some Robusta beans that are like kind of like the little pebble ones, uh, but they were also from Brazil. So everything was sourced. The different streams of beans were all, all single source from Brazil, but the, the cost level was much lower because I think our total cost 
of the of the item was 70% of it was just the input of the green coffee. So uh, so this one was like the most profitable uh, SKU and also one of the best performing introduction uh, product just because of the fact that you know it had that source origin. It's like oh Brazilian, that sounds very exotic. <laughs> so uh, right. so that that's really fun that you got to do that uh, on the hot and spicy. I'm super jealous. I wish I had been uh, doing uh, some of the taste tests there myself. So yeah, it was it was really fun. Um, and it's still, I think it's the number two cheese cracker in the world. It has been for 20 oh, years. Yeah. Um, people okay. still buy it. It's still on the shelves and I eat it myself once in a while. Um, and um, so I did that. Then I helped Dole um, as a consultant via Nielsen. I helped them roll out the very first uh, packaged salad mixes um, and that sort of thing. So again, these were demographically driven decisions uh, Butterfinger BBs and Bunch of Crunch were portion control. People were eating what they called pieces. Rather than getting buying a whole Nestle Crunch bar, you got a little bag of little Nestle Crunch, you know, pebbles or little round nodules, and you can eat two or three, and then roll a bag up and put it in your desk drawer, and you didn't feel like you needed to eat the whole thing, or there was a messy chocolate bar that was half eaten. That sort of felt weird. So all of a sudden, that became a very popular thing uh, to bring forward, and you know, it did very well during the time that those were popular and of course packaged salad mixes save people time and while you know it really only takes a couple of minutes not even that a few seconds to chop up a head of lettuce and throw it in a bowl when you start adding different things in there different more exotic leaves and that sort of thing then it's something that costs a lot more to buy individually and then to make and open up a bunch of packages and things go bad and so it became and you can put some inert gas in there that keeps the lettuce right you know, um, and, and looking and, and in, healthy for uh, up in, uh, in, in Southern California. West, yeah. Westlake village area. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I was a consultant, helped them with their marketing research needs for that. And then one day my boss came to me at Nielsen and said, Hey, we need to find a new revenue stream because we've got big revenue goals. And the, you know, the idea was we can find something out there that has a UPC code on it. So we could track its sales at the store level that or originates from Southern California um, that isn't being tracked. And the answer ended up being home entertainment. And so I put together a little mini database and went over to Disney and pitched it. And they were astonished that I could show them daily store level sales, not only for their own products, but for everybody else's. And so I signed an exclusive deal or they signed the exclusive deal with me. And for three and a half years, Disney was the only company that was allowed to see this data. And they could literally see every single sale of every single title from every single studio from, you know, across every retailer, grocery, drug, mask, you know, um, um, big box club stores, all that stuff were all there. Was this and the they Nielsen could... Nitro database, uh, or was that a different type of database that you guys were uh, developing for this? So this Nitro was the software that was used to extract the data out of this database that I built. Yes, right, great. So Video Scan was the name, the name of it. We eventually acquired Video Scan, which was a different company, and then we took that name and plopped it on my 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 database in essence and branded it and whatnot. And that was the start of Nielsen Entertainment. Um, and then um, the, the corporate people at Nielsen, you know, liked what was going on and liked the fact that, that uh, 
the studios were interested in information and all that kind of stuff and bought EDI, which is the worldwide tracking service for theatrical revenue. They bought the Nielsen television rating systems back and because that had been spun off because obviously there, there have been, you know, issues with it based on the, the change in people's, you know, watching behaviors and that stuff. And then they started a tracking service for streaming when that came on board and then added all that stuff, put it all together in one gigantic database and then added a bunch of other information. Um, and that was the start of Nielsen Entertainment. And so, so I was actually- Let's stay on that uh, real quick. So, so one of the things that I'm actually personally working on for uh, on my day job, so to speak, is uh, a, a DMA project uh, around programmatic. So essentially trying to overlay uh, on uh, kind of, we have a essentially market tiering uh, of our, our different uh, zones, uh, whether it's by uh, store or just by where we get kind of a heat map of sales. And we're essentially using the DMAs to place, uh, uh, you know, optimally place the, the media using the, the DMA uh, format, uh, which, uh, you know, typically I'm only associating the DMAs with uh, when we do TV. So this is like a new thing. So, um, so is the, the, the folks that deal uh, that kind of work, uh, work on that, and we're not working directly with, with uh, Nielsen, I should say, we're working with an agency, that programmatic agency that then, you know, just uses the, those, uh, uh, those market uh, parameters, right, to, to place the media. But tell us a little bit about uh, just, um, in, you know, in terms of the, like on the DMA side, I mean, uh, and how Nielsen uh, ha manages that as it relates to uh, uh, some of the media, um, you know, and, and how, how your, your uh, work at Nielsen kind of uh, related to that. Well, you know, DMA, you know, designated marketing area is a way, a way to group people together geographically um, where they're receiving the same kind of media, basically. So if you have billboards up or you have radio or television, you know, whatever the media vehicle is, you could reach those people in, in a DMA fairly easily um, uh, by um, using the different media. And so it's just a way to sort of group people geographically. But once you've grouped somebody geographically, you have to, you know, you have to group them demographically and psychographically. Like, you know, people can be 30 years old and be in completely different right. types of worlds, right? You know, somebody could be a high level consultant and be flying around the world and making a ton of money. And somebody else could still be, you know, living with their parents and, you know, supporting their family. And they're just different sorts of people. So psychic, you know, what are they thinking about? What do they believe, you know, and that sort of thing. And certainly the current online media companies are doing a fabulous job of that, you know, because I know I go on Google and I search for something. And the next thing you know, there's advertisements <laughs> for that showing up. And it's, yeah. and, and a lot of people feel weird about that. I think it's absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. I don't want to see advertisements for Pampers. It's a great product, but I have no kids. Why would I want to hear that? I would. I keep that. I keep all my data open. I let people see what I'm searching, and I don't feel weird about it at all. As a matter of fact, I want them to do that because then I get advertisements for products that I'm actually interested in, not just random ones. I, you know, I, I agree completely. I think we're probably in the minority. I think a lot of people are freaked out about all this uh, loss of privacy, but but I think it's a, it's a convenience, and it's. I mean, you're basically uh, being concierge the information that's most relevant to you in a way. Right. 
I mean, just the same thing when I go to my local grocery store, which happens to be Ralph's, and I have a, I call them frequent flyer mile cards. And so I scan that thing. I, I've, I've given them some information about myself. So guess what? When I get an email from Ralph's, they're not giving me coupons for Pampers or pet food because I don't have any pets. Right. But they're giving me, you know, for Haagen-Dazs ice cream and Stouffer's mac and cheese and, you know, stuff that I do enjoy. That's what I get my coupons for. So they're not wasting their time and money and they're not giving me coupons. You know, they're giving me coupons that I like and I actually might use, you know, if I actually print them out and do something with them. Right, but right. You know, that stuff is, is what drives the, con the economy really is sales. What two thirds of the GDP is consumer sales. Well, what if people didn't know, you know, manufacturers and retailers didn't know what you liked. You would just be bombarded with stuff that's just crazy. Like I'm not interested in this at all. I'm not interested in that at all. Maybe once in a while something will come along that you're interested in. So and it's very wasteful if you're on the from a marketing standpoint. If you, if you're managing those budgets, then you're wasting a huge portion of it to, for people that are non-prospects. So uh, yeah, exactly. Really makes sense. Exactly. So so then so so then you you were at Nielsen and then you, you then you switched over to uh, so how, how did that transition come about? Like moving over to Sony Entertainment. Well, so Disney had the exclusive on the system that I built for three and a half years. And then they, the contract ran out and I sold it the next morning to Warner Brothers, the more that afternoon to Universal, the next morning to Sony. And you can <laughs> see how it went because wow. it was extraordinarily valuable. Um, Disney, I'm trying to remember their market share in the marketplace was I think number three which sounds odd in this day and age. Um, but um, by the time I left, they were number one because wow. I believe I reduced their out of stocks by 80% and increased their sales by 20. So this was your own proprietary system or was this the Nielsen, the, the video scan, this, or is this something else? This is, this is the Nielsen. When you work for somebody else, which I was doing, and I used all the resources to, to build video scans. So fair enough, they own the whole 100%. I don't own any yeah. any portion of it, unfortunately. Yeah, I know, right? but, exactly. Just 1%, know, come on, man. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, and the same thing with Cheese It Hot and Spicy. I, you know, lots of people worked on it. All I did was come up with the idea and call corporate headquarters and say, hey, I think this might be a good idea. Right. You know, and so, um, you know, same thing when I was at Nestle and all that, I wasn't even part of the company, of course, I was just providing, you know, data and guidance, you know, for these, I mean, these are highly professional marketing people. I was working with some of the best in the world. And so I was supporting them with marketing research and information so they could make the best decisions, you know, possible. So I worked uh, another several years uh, with Disney, working at Disney Universal and Warner Brothers all at the same time. Um, and you can imagine the NDAs I had to sign yes. um, in each of the studios. And it was interesting because I would go from meeting to meeting and sometimes they would be talking about the same movie and it was for sale and they were all talking about what it's worth. And it was really interesting. Of course, I never let on that I knew anything about it. And the way they would ask the questions of me would generate different kinds of answers. And so it was interesting, like, well, what if, you know, we did this and this and released it at this time and positioned it to these people this is what we're planning on doing. What's the forecast of the revenue? And I would tell them, and I would go to another student and I'd say, 
well, we're planning on, you know, if we buy this movie, we're planning on releasing it over here and emphasizing this part of the movie and hitting this demographic. What do you think it will be? Of course, the numbers are different. Is this and for so theatrical or for, or for video or for both kind of uh, windows? Both, both sorts okay. of windows. Right. Um, so now I remember, and, like, I remember, like, uh, there was a lot of regression analysis that went into this type of work, uh, you know, at least when back in those days when I did some of that intern work, uh, both actually, uh, and I did some, I think similar work also in Warner Brothers, where you would do regression analysis, see what is the, you know, looking at what the box office was for that film and how it might do in the next uh, window uh, for, for video and even across like different platforms. Uh, right. Um, and, and then looking at, uh, you know, different comps and, you know, whether it had a star, what the genre was, all these things. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was actually fairly, it, it was actually incredibly accurate for something that seems so uh, ephemeral to forecast. Uh, so it was incredibly, just an incredible model that was de developed to do that. Yeah. So if the theatrical run had already occurred and I was doing forecasts for, or we knew what the theatrical theatrical run was going to look like um i was plus or minus seven yeah, percent you know with my video forecasts but and those were interesting but much more interesting were all the acquisitions questions you know oh i'm at Cannes film festival i just watched a movie that's like this meet this movie meets this movie meets this movie and i would go in and pull the data for those comparable titles and then analyze their profitability and then send back a piece of information on the acquisition that the value of this particular project and of course i was the buyers for sony so it was their job to figure out how much they wanted to bid for it but i gave them parameters of about what something would be worth you know and that sort of thing and, and screen gems uh, was very acquisitive back in those days i remember right like uh, screen yeah. gems they laid that label they were just buying up a, lot, a ton of movies yep yep and they called me all the time for data because they wanted to know what the the video side of this would be and you know and we had i had a bunch of other data too obviously and that sort of thing but it was really interesting but I, you know i had some things that i was just right on the money with and i had some things i was so far off it wasn't even funny you know um i remember one where i really had a big big error um we bought it anyway but uh it was michael flatley lord of the dance and yeah. it had never been out ever and i looked at this i like who wants to see people standing on a stage dancing like this is, you know, there really wasn't anything like that out there. And the reason, and so I said, look, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to say the number because I don't think that'd be appropriate even all these years later, but I said, you know, I, you know, here's a number and let's just say it was really low, you know, initially. Um, but what I missed was a study I saw later on, like, how did I miss this by so much? Hey, there was nothing like it, but here's what I missed. And I should have gotten it knowing the USC Notre Dame rivalry, but how many people in the United States say that they have some Irish ancestry? It is enormous, it, way more than 50% of people claim to have some Irish heritage. And so that's what it was because that's where this, this was Irish dancing. And so this you know, hit people's emotions. And you know, obviously the second one we bought we paid a much much bigger price for and we still made a lot of money off of it and that sort of thing yeah, so and i know he came up from from that river dance uh right troupe, right and and yeah so yes. that, that, that really just exploded uh, it did we bought it but way underpaid for it which was good for us yeah. i mean you know in, in, in hindsight what i said made the company a lot of money 
but it, you know, it could have been bad because I could have said, Hey, you know, bid X amount of dollars and it was worth, you know, move the decimal more, <laughs> maybe twice. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. That, no, absolutely. Like absolutely. I know exactly. What and the people would have said, what did you do, Mike? Oh my God. Look how much money we passed on. Oh my God. But we got it anyway. So let me ask Cause you everybody else ask. was doing the same thing and analyzing right. the same data and looking at it and coming out with sort of the same kind right. of answers. It's there. It's there's definitely a, a an a, an art to it that that uh, you know, and that's why I mean it's uh, you know what the what is the the, the trope the trope of uh, uh, entertainment is where nobody knows anything, right? You know, but uh, which is not entirely true, but still, I mean, uh, there are so many factors kind of beyond beyond forecasting, right? So uh, if it's like the the same thing with uh, you know. Uh, like a movie, like a star, pitching a Star Wars before there was anything like Star Wars, or trying to uh, uh, tr trying to sell somebody on the idea of an iPhone before anything like that exists. It's just like people just don't have. It's hard to even conceive of that because it's just a completely different, um, you know, paradigm, right? The shift for in, uh, entertainment-wise and inter technology-wise, respectively. Right. And I would say what I would say is you're talking about anomalies in the data. So when you look at the data points of the profitability of films, it's actually fairly predictable if you have the right information. But there are things that stick out like, you know, Riverdance and, you know, Blair Witch and, yeah, sure. you know, um, you know, there's a whole pile of also a Sony just... film, right? That's also a Sony acquisition, wasn't it? Blair Witch? Yeah. There we go. Mate. Good job. No, no, no. <laughs> we didn't know. Artisan, Artisan bought that for a million dollars. Oh, Artisan. Uh, but yeah, it costs about $20,000 to make that film. I mean, something ridiculously low, right? Right. But they spent a million dollars fixing the sound oh, because the sound wasn't good and the picture was shaky, right? So right. you can't have bad sound and a shaky picture. So they had to go back and do much of it. But it did, I think, if I remember right correctly, $273 million at the box office. Incredible. It wasn't Incredible. the movie that made it. That was the first time the internet had ever been used to the fullest impact for a movie. That was it. They had they made all the people that were stars go off Facebook and people put on there, oh, so-and-so has passed away, you know, was murdered or whatever. And all this fake stuff was put online and people were like, is this real? Is it not real? And nobody had ever seen a marketing campaign like that. That was the genius of Blair Witch. It wasn't, it was, it was a decent movie. It marketing, it was absolutely spectacular. That was what made it. I, I completely, and I remember like that one and Cloverfield, I thought those were most incredible, just kind of, kind of underground marketing uh, campaigns. Uh, just very, uh, just super clever. I, I mean, there was like an entire, uh, for Cloverfield, I remember there was literally like an entire, uh, almost an entire movie separate from the film that, that was, uh, if you kind of just track all the threads from, from, from the different pieces of, uh, you know, social and internet uh, content that, 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 that was served up. Uh, it was really, uh, it, it was something else. So, um, but good. So, so I, I wanted to just shift gears a little bit uh, and because you've kind of uh, brought up the interesting topic of working um, in-house, right? For, uh, for a company and then also doing consulting. So tell us a little bit about, you know, in, in your career, like, you know, how, how that, that, that dynamic has played out. And then also, uh, you know, especially for our audience, you know, when you're obviously working for a company directly versus doing consulting, which you, you know, done like both of them at a very high level, uh, what do you need to kind of keep in mind to make sure that, that you're, uh, 
you know, doing obviously the, the, the job for the client uh, and keeping them happy, but then also making sure that you have kind of your, your next meal lined up. So I think that would be very helpful for our audience. Right. So working for Nielsen as a marketing research slash consulting firm, uh, we had certain clients and, you know, we had contracts with them for periods of time. Um, and so we just needed to make sure that we were providing more value than what they were pay paying, you know, for our services. So it was very important for me to have lunch with the client. Like, what are you working on? Because I wouldn't be in the company's meetings necessarily about what they were planning for the future because I wasn't part of the company. And so it was important to figure out what they were up against, what, what issues. Now, there were things that I brought out or discovered, like, hey, this is an issue. We need to fix these things. But more strategic sorts of things were much more difficult. And so that was important to have that um, but um, it's just different as, as a consultant, I wasn't really involved in the politics and I wasn't trying to get promoted within their company because I didn't work for their company. And so I didn't have an ax to grind with anybody. I mean, if somebody got promoted, great. You know, I didn't really didn't have a, an opinion on it much, much to speak of as long as they were you know, competent and didn't you know, bother me and stop me from doing my work and that sort of thing. Um, and it was interesting. And, and the other thing I found really interesting is working at Disney um, as a consultant, Universal and Warner Brothers, and how different those three places were, just incredibly different. Um, and so when people come to me and ask me, like, where should I work? I'm like, well, let me ask you some questions about your personality and what is it that you want? And, um, you know, they, they, they all have their pluses and minuses, but if you choose the wrong one, it's going to be miserable. You've got to figure out what, and you can't ask these questions like what's your culture like in an interview, because that's not really an answerable question <laughs> from somebody that's on the inside. And but, I can, but I can ask work. you, Mike, in this, in this interview, uh, just broad strokes. I mean, if, 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 especially for the folks that are interested in, in entertainment marketing um, and, and these studios, I mean, what, what are the main differences in your view of, of a Disney and a Universal and, and a Warner? Well, I think the two, the, well, I think it's easier for me to compare just two of them rather than trying to contrast three sure. of them. Disney is much more brand, brand focused from an HR perspective. The people that work there work, a lot of them work there because it is Disney. Um, I still, I'll never forget this was so many years ago and I don't remember who this person was, but they, Disney puts out little pins for every single movie they release. And this person had been working at Disney for a long, long time. And they made it their life goal to have one pin for every single movie that was released. And they had them in their cubicle in chronological order. I'm talking like two or 300 of these things. Wow. And I, um, uh, I went uh, into his cubicle once and I pulled one off just randomly and just sort of held it for a minute. And you could, I mean, he just went absolutely ballistic over it. I'm like, oh, here it is. This is, is this what you're looking for? This absolutely ballistic. And he said to me once, he goes, I would never work in another place. And I said, not Warner Brothers or Sony or Disney. Nope. Disney is the greatest brand that has ever existed. And it's the, you know, it's the happiest place on earth. And I will never work in another company. I don't care what I do. This is my brand. And I never forgot that because I thought, wow, the passion that that person has for that Disney brand 
And I've heard that from more than one person um, that, you know, that's how they felt, you know, about it. I, I went with another person who's also in entertainment um, and uh, we went to Disneyland and we, I mean, I'd never been there before. I've been to Walt Disney World because I'm from the East Coast, but I've never been to Disneyland. And we went in and I went into it's a small world. And I'm like, this is, you know, old looking. It's like, you know, spinning wheels and, you know, stuff like that or whatever. And I said, well, why don't they rip this thing down and put up a new ride? And people <laughs> almost right. threw me overboard. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like Walt Disney himself designed this for whatever the World's Fair was. And then they brought it here. Like his hands touched these things. Like you can't, this is a, a historic landmark. It cannot ever be torn down, ever. And I'm like, wow. Like again, it, the passion yes, absolutely, there. Sacrosanct. absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know. I shut my mouth then. So anyway, then <laughs> Warner Brothers is different, completely different than that. Warner Brothers, in my view, is more corporate. They're more, they, you know, it's not as, you know, they don't, you don't have that passion about the brand and the man who made that brand. It, you know, more. It, as famous as Jack Warner is, it, it's still, yes. not, it's not Walt Disney, right? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have that, whatever that thing is, that charisma or whatever it is. Warner Brothers is very, very good at what they do, you know, um, and they give Disney a run for their money for sure. And, you know, in some years they are better and some years Disney is better in revenue or whatever. You know, and they say they're very, much metric. very friendly from a, uh, for the talent, right? Like they're the most talent friendly studio, uh, at least I think until recently, uh, you know, with the, uh, uh, I think they they, they had uh, some pushback uh, when they did the, the whole slate release uh, on HBO Max. Uh, I think that there was uh, some uh, some pushback, but I think that got resolved. Uh, but generally speaking, that's what I that's kind of the common understanding. And, and you know, I, I did work there uh, for full disclosure, both at Disney and at uh, Warner on the licensing side. And uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I can definitely attest that there's definitely some differences to, to those places. And they both have incredible pluses uh, as well, I think, uh, as uh, right. studios, so. Right, and so, you know, I would go to Warner Brothers and the meetings were much more business-like, you know, much more, you know, analysis and, you know, considering the marketplace and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, not to the, you know, I don't, you know, they both have these things. It just has a different feel to it. It was, you know, Warner Brothers felt more like Nestle to me. When I walk in the door, people were quiet. They were doing their work and all that kind of stuff. Disney was more rambunctious and there were more people, you know, talking about, because Disney owns so much, right? They were talking about something going on with the cruise lines or, oh, we're opening up, you know, a new, you know, um, you know, Paris, you know, Disneyland or what, that kind of stuff. There was always, there was like more of a buzz, whereas Warner Brothers, let's get to work and get stuff done and make, make money and make this happen. And just, that's how it felt very different for me. Right. You know? Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I think Disney too, I mean, because it is so brand oriented, a lot of the decisions that were made uh, at a divisional level uh, sometimes had to be uh, kind of vetted, right? At like, maybe like the, corporate franchise level or even the, the strategic planning group level uh, because you know it, like something might make sense from uh, a revenue and profitability side but then it, if it didn't match up with uh, whatever uh, kind of pillars were were in place for for uh, uh, for the from a corporate responsibility standpoint uh, that, then you know we had to uh, uh, you know 
bring some of that back. So that that actually, uh, you know, a couple of times actually, uh, we we had some uh, things that were like, man, we want to do this partnership, and then and it's like, yeah, it's it's fantastic, and everybody would be uh, completely on board and and moving forward, and then and then you get a note from from uh, corporate, and it's like, okay, well, we need to <laughs> re retool it or just uh, go go a different direction altogether. Right. Uh, That's. The brand value needs to be maintained. That is what does all the stuff that I talked about it. Right. That's and what it makes causes sense. that. It makes sense because yeah. even if you make a couple of million dollars in a particular, uh, you know, program, right? This licensing program, if it's going to even have a small risk of impacting the equity that of uh, of the of the brand, right? Of, of of Disney, which is worth you know many many billions of dollars, uh, you know, it's not that's not a that's not a good yeah. trade. So it completely makes sense. To me, that's one of the things that that, that really kind of brought uh, the uh, kind of the insight that like okay, when you're when you're working in these th in, in these type of places, you know, uh, sometimes some of the the, the things uh, that that are decided at a high level may not even be explained in sort of why it is, but but the the folks that are working on those levels, they usually have a reason, and it might be a a kind of a philosophical reason and an abstract reason, or it might be a very specific reason. There might be some other project going uh, along that, that is in conflict with this thing that you're working on. So, you know, eh, better to be understanding and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, state the case, but also uh, be respectful of the organization as you, as you pursue it. So uh, that, that was for me, certainly a good lesson to learn. And frankly, at both at Warner and, and Disney, although I would say even at Disney, probably even a little bit more uh, because of the equity piece that we talked about, so. Right, right. So after I finished all of that, um, I you know, finished my MBA at USC in entertainment. Um, and then I went to work for Sony um, and did the same thing. I was doing, I was inside and of course I bought my own system, but I was in charge of research and sales planning and forecasting and merchandise and, um, um, uh, business development and reporting. Uh, and so I generated all the reports for the home entertainment division, um, sales and margins and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I was there for five and a half years, something along those lines. Um, and it was very interesting to be on the inside of a studio versus just being a consultant coming and going. Um, and I, mean, I found it, found it very interesting because it was really entertainment in general, Warner Brothers is the closest, but really different than the Nestle and the Kellogg's and the other places and the Doles of the world. The, the cultures are very different in entertainment and the personalities are different. And, you know, expectations are different and what's acceptable is different. I mean, really virtually nothing in common except that there's a building with some cubicles and offices. I don't think they have anything else in common at all. Right, so you're um, an executive director there. So how do you navigate that environment? Uh... Well, it was, it was actually rather difficult um, for a bunch of reasons, one of which I had never really had, even though I've talked about entertainment here, I really never had a job in entertainment. I'd been working for a research firm that did some consulting. So to come in, my very first job in entertainment was executive director. It ruffled not more than a, a few feathers because there were a lot of people that had started working there when they were 21 and they were now 30 and I was two levels above them. And I'd never really even stepped foot on a studio prior to working at Nielsen. And, um, 
And so that ruffled a few feathers and whatnot. And so the culture was just very different for me. And, and uh, um, you know, I, I had, you know, I had some, there are some wonderful people that I'm still friends with that I talk to on a regular basis today that were there. And there were some other people that I just questioned how they got there. And um, I never saw that at Nestle, you know, or Dole. These people were all very, very competent at what they did and all that sort of thing. And so I think in entertainment, it's, it's clickier. You know, if somebody likes you, they'll promote you, not necessarily on your merits. Um, and I saw that, and I think people know that about entertainment. I don't think I'm saying anything that's, you know, um, unusual, but certainly, you know, very competent, wonderful, charming, you know, uh, talented people, many of them, but some of them I just would look at and like, I don't get it. Like, you know, what, what do you even do? I'm not sure what you do, you know, type of a thing. So it was, it was shocking to me to see some of those things, you know, um, and I came from a world where your, your talents and your productivity, what you actually contributed to the company was the thing that worked. And I had a superior of mine told me once, that's not what gets you promoted here. I'm like, well, what is it? Like, you know, you know um, you've got to, you know, do things to support yourself. And I'm like, well, of course, but I don't know what you mean. And he ended up you know, without disclosing what it was, but he ended up making a decision that harmed the company, but promoted his career. So he could put, he told me point blank, I'm doing this so I can put this on my resume. And I'm just like shocked that somebody would do something like that. And I told him numerically what it was co going to cost the company. and He did not care. And that's shocking to me. Like I just didn't grow up that way. Um, so anyway, that was, it was, it was an interesting navigation and we had, you know, a lot of changeover, you know, in the company for some period of time. So, um, anyway, it was, a it was a fun experience. I got to go to premieres and meet all kinds of neat people and work on all kinds of, you know, I, you know, I was a expert witness, uh, to bring Spider-Man to, to Sony because I knew what the value of these things were. Cause I had all the numbers. And that was a really interesting thing to, to go through, to be trained by the attorneys and talk about what needed to happen and what I needed to bring to the table and, you know, all those sorts well, of things. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, so th those rights were not, back then, those rights were still now with Sony? I thought they had, so that was around that time that they actually uh, kind of split up the, <laughs> split the baby up <laughs> with Universal, the Hulk, Spider-Man for, for, uh, you know, for, for uh, Sony and then, uh, the, the remainder, a lot of that stuff uh, just did, actually didn't even get produced for a while, right? Well, so Spider-Man was sort of a, an entity in and of itself. And um, the way the deal had been originally cut for Spider-Man to be created, and I may not get the dates exactly right, but I was going to say sometime in the late 80s, but the deal was not cut correctly. It wasn't cut according to standards. And as a result the option that Paramount had with this ran out without a script that Stan Lee approved that triggered the option to lapse, which allowed Stan Lee to sell it to somebody else. Um, but that was never gonna go because there was a lot of money exchanged hands and Stan Lee rejected every single script that Paramount put out there. 
And so they said, look, you know, this is, you know, you can't just walk away with our money. Um, and they had, if I remember correctly, this was a, you know, a decade or more ago, but if I recall correctly, Stan Lee sold the theatrical rights to, to Paramount, the television rights to Fox and the video rights to Sony um, because that was more money in breaking it up, which is not how you usually do a franchise. You, you own all the windows, right? Um, and when Paramount got the option not renewed, then of course, Sony's option became worthless because there was no movie to release on home entertainment and no Spider-Man to release on television. So if I, again, I may get, have this a little off, but Paramount sued Stan Lee, Fox sued Paramount and Stan Lee, Sony sued Paramount and Stan Lee, and it stayed in the courts for almost 10 years. Um, but finally it got resolved and said, okay, you know, Sony, you've won the lawsuit, but now we have to figure out how much to pay. And then that's where I came in and valuing the franchise so that Sony could write a check to all these people to buy them out of their positions. So that's why Spider-Man's still at Sony because that was pulled out of the Marvel group before Disney bought it. That's fascinating. There's this great book uh, called The uh, Comic Wars uh, that uh -huh. I, I think talks about that. I think it was in the 1980s, right? This mega battle between uh, Carl Icahn and Ron Perlman and they were essentially battling for Toy Biz, which had uh, essentially uh, uh, hooked uh, some uh, licensing rights into Spider-Man uh, with uh, who I think that was led by uh, Ike Pohlmutter, who is a very famous uh, reclusive uh, billionaire and then um, had worked very closely with Avi Arad, right? Who, uh, from, who ended, you know, obviously was at Sony, eventually uh, ended up at Sony. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a highly recommended book if you wanna kind of read some more uh, on that for, for, the, for the audience. Uh, and uh, I did go through that uh, book some years ago. It's, uh, it's almost as fascinating as reading some of the comic books and <laughs> just the, the battles for, for this and, and uh, also the, uh, the Wall Street aspect of uh, M&A, uh, uh, that that uh, was a part of that. So uh, anyway, but that, that's right. fascinating. So, yeah. So apologies if I got the story wrong because it's been 15 years and I may have got it. You know, but you get the general. I think you, no. I think you got most of it right for sure. For sure. No. And it, it's yeah. really interesting. So so then um, so I want to kind of switch over. So you know you you, you after after Sony uh, you you had uh, you know you you know you basically were working again in entertainment. Activision, which is, you know, video game. Uh, but then I want to learn a little bit more about your experience um, and how you founded uh, Beckett Film, uh, the Beckett Film Fund, and what what that fund, uh, you know, what what that uh, company is about and what kind of movies you're looking to make and, and how you started that. Right. So getting a running start on that, the the stuff that I did in real estate way, way back when I was right out of undergrad was demographic based. And I saw what was going on with the demographics of net migration of different groups of people. Cheese is hot and spicy was the same thing. You know, people, you know, were changing their behaviors. Uh, the demographics of the United States were changing. Um, then building, you know, video scan um, and, you know, how people were changing their viewing habits because video was taking off and, you know, um, making a ton of money for the studios, you know, it was, you know, having triple digit growth year after year after year after year. And there was so much money, you know, flowing into the studios extra that where that window didn't exist. And they were still having television revenue and theatrical revenue. And this was sort of, you know, 
on top of that, which was really awesome. And so, but I did all those things while I worked for somebody else and they own them, right? Say, I think I got a $200 bonus for, you know, for the cheese at hot and spicy, uh, um, you know, thought <laughs> I got a $2,000 bonus for starting, you know, you video scan, which <laughs> led to whatever. And I got a $0 bonus for helping with the Spider-Man stuff. It was, uh, you know, um, it was just a standard, you know, salary and bonus. It was part of your job to be able to do that. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, show me in my in my job description where I'm an expert witness, right? It wasn't there, obviously. <laughs> so I decided I wanted to do something for myself. And so knowing what my skills are in, mar you know, marketing research and consumer behavior, I suspected that there was a way to be inclusive with women and minorities in writer and director roles for feature films and including minorities on screen in certain proportions in independent films that could increase the revenue. Now, the big studios are already doing it. They're already putting minorities in, in big roles and you know, flipping the genders of things you know, that you, know, you would think would be men, but now are women or vice versa. But the independent film world really doesn't have access to the data, can't, doesn't want to do that. And it's very risky. I mean, if you cast wrong, of course, that's why they're casting directors that are, you know, well worth their weight in gold. You know, um, if you make a wrong casting choice, it can, it can reduce your revenue so much that you don't make any money off of a film. So I downloaded the, the uh, profitability of hundreds of movies and analyzed them. Um, in the independent world to see if the profitability was different if, um, you know, a, a person of color were on screen or if instead of uh, a white male writing and a white male directing, which is what 95 or 98 percent of all the movies, you know, um, that, that hit the silver screen are, what if I changed that? And so anyway, I downloaded this manually coded this gigantic database on Excel and then I would come home after work and have a glass of wine and just make up a formula and say well what if they you know made half of the cast you know a per people of color and kept the writer and director as you know white males did those movies do better as a proportion you know in other words revenue over expenses in essence better than the ones that didn't have that you know didn't follow that rule and I just kept making up rules until finally I found one and, you know, I just plugged in a number and I thought I knew what the answer was and I got really close and finally I hit on it. And it turns out that if people follow this formula for casting and, and, and um, hiring directors, the revenue for these films was 31.25% higher just by that's doing amazing. that. That's amazing. So that start. So I said, well, that's great. And I've done it myself. Nobody else was involved in it. Now I'm going to, um, you know, help implement that in the independent film world. And what I found was the biggest problem wasn't that it was finding money <laughs> because a lot of people say, hey, I'm willing to do this, but I still don't have funding for my film. And so I said, well, if I could put together a big film fund and finance films that meet the criteria or can meet the criteria, then I've solved this issue and I can support, you know, women and underrepresented people in the feature film business. And so that started the film fund. 
Um, and so that, that was my plan. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I'm almost done. I've got a board of advisors that's outstanding. I've got a CFO that's, uh, you know, world-class. Uh, I'm the C CEO. Of course, I'm going to handle the marketing research and the forecasting and the planning and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm um, three quarters of the way through the film for the, through the uh, fundraising you know, for the equity and debt that I need for the film. And I'm just looking for the triggering um, money at this point in time. So I'm really excited about it. And I'm really passionate about helping independent filmmakers um, realize their dreams. And so with relationships at the studios for distribution, relationship with the PA funds that are wanting to put PA money behind these films, um, with the board of advisors that I've got and the CFO that I've got, um, I feel like I'm going to be um, really making an impact on the, on the business. And, you know, it's, we live in a, you know, in a, in a society where you need to make money. It's not a communist society, it's capitalist. And so, you know, in order to help these people, I have to show that I can, um, you know, help them make more money or have a bigger chance of being profitable. Um, and some films won't work. I'm not going to cram it down the throat of a film where it just cannot be a certain, I can't put minorities in. It doesn't make any sense, you know, um, but where it works, then um, why not do it? Why not give minority actors a chance? Why not give, you know, uh, Indian directors a chance? Um, and I can show you know, that they've still got to have talent. So I don't, you know, uh, I don't use this to, you know, make this, change the scripts and stuff. I find scripts and projects that are already really good and I take them to the next level. Right, and it's, it's, it's that intersection of, of uh, equity and profitability because I mean, it's, they're, not, they're not supposed to be mutually exclusive. And I think this is, uh, you know, I think this is almost like, you know, you're like uniquely suited for this mission, you know, with your, with your prior experience. Uh, so it, it's uh, definitely very satisfying to, to see, see you uh, uh, leading that, that effort. Um, are, are there any, any projects? Uh, I know obviously you're probably there's a bunch of NDAs and, and, and things that you can't talk about, but is there any, any particular uh, film or, or project that within, within that fund that, that you can actually uh, say anything about uh, publicly? Well, I guess I would say it like this. I, you know, people come to me and that find out about Beckett Film Fund and come to me and want me to finance their films. And the first thing I say to them, I don't have access to the capital yet to do that. It's coming. Right. So I and I don't tie up projects that way. It's not fair to the producers and it's not fair. It's, it's not not that useful for me. I mean, I guess I could have a whole slate put together and pitch it to an investor. Um, but, you know, I think investors pretty much know that with the, you know, um, the kind of money that I'm talking about, you know, uh, I'll have projects, you know, lined up out the door. I've got 150 that people have pitched to me anyway, that are sitting in the Google drive waiting to be evaluated. So I've got a lot of projects there. Um, there are also, you know, two of the big talent agencies have minority divisions that I've spoken with. Um, and, uh, they have projects that are fully packaged, ready to go and um you know looking for money and that sort of thing and so i may may go there for you know some of the projects and whatnot so there's no there, there are a lot of projects out there that 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 would qualify you know and, and that are good and so um um you know i'm not, I'm not too worried about 
finding them. I'm more worried about selecting the right one, exactly. you know, you know and, and that sort of thing. And so that'll be, you know, the head of creative will be doing that, um, you know, reading the scripts and people that are experts in those sorts of things, because, you know, the, 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 you know, there are people that are, you know, the people that work at the studios, they're experts at what they do. I, you know, I, I, I would say I would pl plug the studios. I mean, I worked at all the studios you mentioned and I have very good friends at the other ones. Not once did I ever hear anybody say, oh, well, this is an independent filmmaker. Let's do something, you know, that's going to harm them or whatever. Not once, not from anybody ever. And I was in lots of meetings. So they do what they do. They're very, very good at what they do. You know, they're trying to make the most amount of money. And with distribution fees, the more money that the film makes, the more money they make. So they're in, in the same boat with the filmmakers. And, you know, the new, the new um, well, relatively new way of paying are just flat distribution fees. And then that's the fee and let the studio spend that money are those no. still like fifteen percent, or have they have those changed a lot since uh, I, <laughs> since I uh, they're yeah, closer did a model to or... twenty. Oh yeah, boy, they're okay. closer to twenty. So, um, but it depends on who you are and what the film is and what deal you know. There's also deals to be cut there or whatever. But those fees are wonderful, right? You don't have to worry about you know the expense side at all. All you have to worry about the revenue side of it. Is the revenue being reported correctly? And, and the studios want the pipeline, right? This. They need the pipeline to kind of feed that distribution uh, nut, right? That they that they have. Right. And then think about you've got Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Roku, all these companies that are now, you know, sucking up, you know, talent, sucking up projects and stuff. The studios have have you know no less of a need for these projects, you know. Um, uh, pandemic excluded, of course, uh, but they need they need projects. So there's a big content need out there um, that uh, I think is great for independent filmmakers. So along those lines, so if if somebody wanted to uh, contact uh, the Beckett Film Fund and and you know also uh, you directly, uh, what what's the best way for uh, any aspiring filmmakers or content makers to to reach you? Well, I would say my my website is up and functioning. It's BeckettFilmFund.com, and that's Beckett spilled with one T. Um, and then there's a the last page that says contact, and it will come straight to me. That's where that that email goes. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, filmmakers, writers, investors. I need one more investor to come to the table to trigger all the rest of the money that I've got lined up. You know, and I've got signed term sheets and. I've got offers to help finance even all the way up to studio films and stuff like that that are, you know, wanting some co-financing dollars and, and those sorts of things. So lots of opportunity for investors, lots of opportunity for independent filmmakers and those sorts of things. So um, just drop me an email. You know, I'm not that hard to find. I'm on LinkedIn, too. Um, and my contact information is there as well. And Mike is very responsive too. So I, I, I think that, that that's, uh, I, I know that personally because he's been a, a fantastic mentor and, and I know that, that that's uh, true, true with a lot of people that, that interact with him. So uh, definitely uh, reach out uh, if, if, you, uh, if you have something that you want to uh, pitch to them. Um, so lastly, I, I wanted to, uh, I usually end with this question um, uh, for, for all our guests is uh, what have you read or listened to recently that inspired you uh, that you can share with uh, our audience? Well, I spend the majority of my entertainment time when I'm not watching a movie, 
of some sort on YouTube. And I, you know, I watch lots of documentaries um, and, um, you know, you know, I look at the, I think what a lot of people do, uh, what is Bill Gates saying about, you know, success? What, what does it take? You know, rare is the person who really is overnight success. Like it really isn't. It's, 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 it, sometimes it's a lifelong journey and um, it certainly is for me. Um, and, you know, jumping out of a corporate world and then all of a sudden I'm paying my own bills with my own money. And if I don't generate any money, I don't have any coming in. It doesn't, you know, it's very different feeling than, you know, there's a direct deposit into my bank accounts, you know, every other week, you know, for X amount of dollars, then, you know, I know what I've got. Um, and so I look at those people as sort of entrepreneurs and, um, you know, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I, you know, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, um, CEO was said the other day is like, I encourage the people that work for me to be the best they can be. I, I, I incentivize them to be ethical and profitable. Um, I incentivize them to hire the right people, to retain the right people. I give them the assets and, the, and that they need to do all that. And then they get to share in the profitability of, you know, what their accomplishments are. And, they, and, the, and so I think one of the things that um, when, when companies go awry, to me, it's a human resources issue. The, the, the you know, the, um, the goals on their, you know, and for their annual review are not set right. You know, the, the, the incentive, you know, what, you know, retaining the right people, you know, are you going for margin? Are you going for turns? Are you going for gross sales? What is it? What are you putting on the CEO and all the people below him or her? What are you putting on their, um, you know, uh, review? What are you incenting them to do? What are you saying? Hey, this is, this is what we want you to focus on. When you set that wrong, if, if you, for example, say, we're going to evaluate you on the, the, on the value of the stock at the end of each quarter. When you do that, that person says, okay, the company wants short-term gains. So I'm going to sell off stuff. I'm going to do this and this and this. Whereas, you know, if you give them stock options that vest in three, five, seven, and 10 years, then the person says, oh, they're interested in long-term profitability. So then their whole mindset changes. And, you know, I think that that was the most interesting thing that I saw, um, you know, with the, the, you know, the interview um, uh, with him, why have I lost his name, the Oracle of Omaha? Oh, Warren Buffett, yes. Yeah, Warren Buffett. So that was what he said. And then they interviewed and they said, he's a dream to work for. I don't, he doesn't come in, you know, menacingly or whatever. He comes in and he says, you know, you, you, know, you raised the value of the company by 4% last year. What can we do to get it up 10? What asset, because I have more assets than you could dream of. What, you tell me what you need, I'll give you the tools but I want you to hit it, right? I'm not gonna, you know, if you ask for these things, you need to, you know, make that work. And to me, that's management, human resources, all that stuff sort of combined. 
And I certainly know when I worked for a boss that made me want to be better, that can, you know, answer questions or would steer me in the right direction if I, if, if he or she didn't know the answer, those were the places where I just felt great. But the places where I couldn't get the assets, then the people that worked for me, you know, didn't look, you know, were harmed and looked at me and like, why can't you get these assets? Why can't you get my salary to market level? And I try and try and try, but my boss, you know, wouldn't buy in. If my boss wouldn't buy in, I can't fairly compensate the people below me. And then I have high turnover because people are going to other companies where they're making, you know, I'm thinking of a specific job where I had people reporting to me. Um, and I told HR, hey, our salaries are low. And they did a whole service. Says, no, they're not too low. I had two people leave, go to two different studios, have exactly the same job, not just sort of the same job, exactly the same job, handling the exact same client and got a 50% increase in their salary. But somehow that That's survey high. didn't work. <laughs> Five zero. Frankly, right. they left me and they went, one went to Universal and one went to Warner Brothers. And they both got 50% increases in salary. And then my boss says, well, why do you have turnover? Like, I don't know how to answer that question at that point. <laughs> you know, I've told you what the answer is. HR doesn't seem to think that that's true. Um, and so I, I don't know. I can't fix the problem. Right. So it's, it's really, it's all about kind of building things for the long term to, to last and, and, and really kind of, uh, and I love what you said about, uh, you know, when, when you have, uh, when, when you have folks that you're reporting up to that, that, that are looking out for you and, and that, are, uh, that have your back and, and, and can um, uh, address uh, your questions and, and help you, uh, you know, uh, avoid uh, landmines and, uh, you know, th that makes a huge difference. I, I totally agree uh, with you on that. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, now that you have your, your own fund and, and you're the CEO, I mean, it's, uh, it's wonderful to, to hear that that's uh, the mindset for that. So I, I think uh, that, you know, that's obviously going to uh, color what, um, uh, you know, the, the, the folks that, that work for you and, and the partners and the creative partners that you, that you have. So uh, I cannot right. wait to see the, uh, the, the stream film, the, the, the movie, hopefully, uh, if we ever get back to a movie theater. <laughs> sometime oh, it's in coming. California. <laughs> uh, it's coming. It's uh, absolutely it's coming. On the, on the, you know, on the final note on that, uh, the subject matter that I just talked about was I brought somebody on board you know, or teed them up to be on board with the, with the film fund. And I, and, and, you know, they're highly skilled professionals and going to back to that salary issue. I said to them, what do you think your salary should be? Here's what you're going to have to do. What's fair compensation for that. And I've done that several times. And you know what? People almost always hit right where I think it should be. Hmm. And then they feel empowered by saying something that they believe that's fair and then they come in with a positive attitude that you know mike's going to compensate me from you know there's lots of different ways of compensating obviously than just salary but you know how does that function and i find that people really are if they're absolutely outrageously low or absolutely outrageously high then my eyebrows rise i'm like okay so why do you think you're worth 10 million dollars a year <laughs> right or whatever the number is <laughs> oh, or why do you think you're only worth fifty thousand? if you're paying those salaries mike i'll go i'll go work for you right now <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. 
well, well, thank you again. I just, uh, I really can't thank you enough for, for, for being on the podcast uh, today. Um, again, uh, I think, you know, now th this is a relationship that now spans decades uh, and uh, I'm, I'm super uh, proud to call you a mentor and a friend. Uh, and uh, thank you for, for being on, on, on the program. And of course, uh, do uh, please reach out to, uh, to Mike if you have any projects or if you know, just wanna reach out for some other reasons. Um, we will put uh, his contact information also uh, uh, with the uh, description for this particular broad, uh, broadcast. So uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, all right, so on to the next show uh, next week. Uh, thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, bye. Thank you.